Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Nehemiah 10. And basically, the last time the title was National and Personal Revival. And, you know, as it happens, as I go through the scripture, sometimes I'll read something and it catches my attention. And I kind of do a little aside. I talked heavily last Sunday, if you weren't here, about creation versus evolution. I went into biology, I went into chemistry, and I have my uh, science teacher in the back for decades. And he, he's my fact checker, so I go back there, and he really loved it last Sunday. So it's really a good encouragement to see what is the world teaching, how old and archaic is their so-called science, and what does new science really say about the scripture or about creation and, and the origin of man, etc. So check that out when you get a chance. Uh, today, we're going to look at, well, what happens after the, the reading of God's word, the rallies, the euphoria, the fellowship, and everybody goes home. And as I title today's message, commitment. Commitment. And this is whether it was the children of Israel that were getting together and promising to follow God's word, or even the church today. The way I see it, when you go home, you hear a message, you go to a Christian concert, or a, a Bible conference, or a men's uh, conference, or a women's conference, and you go home, you have only two choices. You either can commit, or you don't commit. You know, many may have emotional appeals. You know, they'll go to events and they'll be driven by their emotions and there'll be tears and, and, and I should and, and I'm convicted and I'm gonna and I'm gonna and then a week later, it just ends. Again, we could be like those people or we could commit. Whether it be the children of Israel or the church today, it's truly a choice. And today we're going to look at really eight stipulations or conditions after the rallies, after the euphoria, after the the revival for the people to decide when they went home if they were going to follow God's word or not. It's that simple. Actually, just so you know, after we're out of Nehemiah, we have like a few more sermons. Uh, we're going to jump into Philippians, so I'm really looking forward to doing that as well. Just going to start with, again, chapter delineations came centuries later, so I'm going to start with Nehemiah 9, last verse, 38. And it said, because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. And our leaders and Levites and our priests seal it. Now those who placed their seal on the document were, starting at the top, Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah and Zedekiah. And it goes through the names. I don't have to read all the names. But we'll see the priests are there, the Levites are there, the brethren are there. You know what's beautiful when there's a revival and the leaders are a part of it. Usually, actually when you look at historic revivals, um, you find that, well, in, in the Western Hemisphere, usually it was a grassroots thing. It was individuals moved by the Holy Spirit. And maybe a lot of the leaders didn't catch on, but the Holy Spirit did an incredible work here. What's amazing is that the leaders are saying, hey, we're leaders. You know, we're at the top of the food chain. We're at the top of the echelon. And I'm, I'm just embellishing a little bit, but we, we, we're, we're cut to the heart too. We need this personal revival as well. So we'll check it out. In context, again, there's this written covenant, uh, the leaders seal it, and you could say that this is ratifying the covenant. If you've done any type of negotiations and such, you understand these terms. 
Verse 28, he goes on. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, pagan peoples, to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and everyone who had knowledge and understanding, they joined with the brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes, that we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. That if the peoples of the land bring wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and that we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exaction of every debt. See, so it's my job to take something that was written over 3,000, right around 3,000 or so years ago, and then bring it to our understanding and make sense of it. Now, not to see the Bible with 2016 Western colored glasses, can't go that far. What does the Bible say in context? What's the proper expository teaching? But also not to put our ideas of what we see in our society and superimpose them on the Scripture. We want to pull what's out of that, what's God trying to say to us. So it is a challenge to take thousands of years that have passed, different cultures, different languages, and bring it all up to speed and make sense of it. So I'm going to intersperse and juxtapose, put our understanding when we read this of how, what we can take away from this. So let's look at these eight stipulations. The first one is they wrote it down and they put their seal upon it. So back then, you know, you made it, you know, listen, a covenant, a contract. We understand those today, but I think what's a little foreign to us is back then, it was a contract with the Lord. Lord, we promise we're going to do those things. You know, it's a little foreign today. You know, some people journal in their Bible, they have a journal and they promise God and they make, and that's really awesome. But sometimes in Western society, in, in this era, we're a little loose with our commitments to the Lord. Okay, so what they would do is sometimes there would be a sacrifice that was made. And if you were a dignitary and you had a dignitary seal, while it was, after it was being written, you would put your seal in that hot wax. And that signified that this was a binding agreement. Okay? Second thing we can look at in verse 28 is they separated themselves from their pagan neighbors. Why? Now, this is coming up again. Okay? If you had just looked at the news and you see the debates going on in our country and Europe, and you hear the term xenophobia, fear of foreigners, it's not what they're talking about. Okay? Let's look at this. What does it mean? They were concerned about negative influences. They could care less about ethnic influences, which you hear the debates today. They were concerned about spiritual influences in a negative way. Now, it didn't mean that the children of Israel could live in a bubble. These were their neighbors. They had to interact with them. But they also wanted to make a promise to separate themselves from those. Listen, their neighbors were worshiping demons. They were worshiping the fish god. They were worshiping the storm god. God was very offended by that, by the way. So they made a promise to not be influenced by these weird, cultish, occultish practices. My question is, do we separate ourselves from spiritual declension in people? Now, it's a different story if you're working with somebody and they're hungry for God, they're hungry for Jesus, and you're leading them to Christ. You're having a positive influence on them. That's a different story. 
Remember, influence is rarely static or at equilibrium. Influence is going one way or the other. On any given day, week, you know, you're involved with others that you know. They're either having a negative influence on you, or in, in the case of their, your mentors, they're having a positive influence on you. But let's just go back to those that don't know the Lord, or you're having a, ne- a positive influence on them, or having a negative influence on you. Which is it? And we know. You know, we, we know. Sometimes we don't want to see, but we know. The third thing in verse 28 was that there were many witnesses. Okay, there's a lot of names. There's a lot of groups of people spoken about. Accountability. That's important. Accountability. And there's this thing where God has designed the church as a, as a group. Honestly, there's really no example in Christianity of what I would call lone wolf Christianity. It doesn't exist. And it's funny because, and I I hear this, and people will bounce from church to church to church because they can never just seem to get along with people. Then they end up sitting on their couch and watching Sunday church on the TV, the TV preachers. That's not church. The Bible says in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of the brethren. There is something to be said about God putting a bunch of different people in a room, in a community, and saying, now get along. But I don't like that person. Well, that person's different from me. Well, but, 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 God's just like, listen, How's the, how's the world going to know you, church? Your love for each other. So figure it out. <laughs> no. And I, I found that, you know, maybe some that I didn't get along with at first over a period of five or ten years, you, you keep trying. You keep trying. And at, it's at the end of an er, a period of time, you might find out that you're actually good friends and you have a lot in common. So assembly is very important. You know, accountability is important. Usually when, when the person disappears from a while, they start to separate themselves. I tell you what, and we, we, it's very easy to get involved with secret sin when we're alone because, you know, we're, we're not bouncing things off of each other. See what I'm saying? We're not receiving the word and interacting. So the people component is very important. And it's funny because sometimes the biggest complaints of Christians is other people, other Christians. <laughs> Right? Does God say it's going to be easy? When God puts two sinners together and, and brings them together in marriage, does he say it's going to be easy? No, it's two sinners coming together. They're going to, at times, want their own way. Work it out. You know, That's the beauty of God. He doesn't, he doesn't ask us to do the easy thing, but he asks us to do the right thing. The fourth point that we look at, verse 29. They took an oath and they pronounced a curse if they didn't uh, obey. Now, again, this is the... Old dispensation, there were things that they did back then. There are things that we do today. There are things that Jesus says, he looks back and says, well, maybe it started out as a good thing, but let me tell you why it's not a good thing. Let me tell you what it's turned into. And let me tell you how to behave now. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He took the commandments. He took the the Mosaic law. He took the ceremonial things. And and Jesus would say, you know, I got to tell you something. (laughs) That must have been an amazing thing just sitting at his feet. He just could take anything and spin it into something beautiful. I mean, just turn it into beauty. Beauty for ashes. So I'll tell you what Jesus said. <laughs> but let's, let's look at this. An oath and a curse. An oath was basically you would say, I, would, I swear by God that I'm going to do this. So it was binding. A curse was someone to the extreme of taking a curse which says, I swear by God I'm going to do this, and if I don't, that he would 
punish me. <laughs> I mean, you better make sure you do it if, if that's what you're going to say. So let's look at what Ecclesiastes says, Ecclesiastes 5 in the Old Testament, and let's look at what Jesus says in the New Testament. So Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, it says, Walk prudently, remember this is the Old Testament, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and, <laughs> and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. It is better not to vow than to vow and not pay. You hear people today saying, and I cringe, you know, I swear on my children, I swear on my eyes. Oh my goodness, don't say that, you know what I'm saying? And it's just this rash stuff that comes out of the person's mouth. It's really foolish as if, if it was actually to come to pass. So even in the Old Testament, it said, don't be in a hurry to promise God anything. Make sure you really think this through, okay? Six, do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Oh, it's my mistake, sorry. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. So the Bible's saying that it's better to not make a promise than to make a promise and not follow through. Okay, you see the order there. What did Jesus say in the New Testament? Well, let's go to Matthew 5. Verse 33, I love the uh, Sermon on the Mount because I see like pages in my book of Matthew of Jesus just taking everything in the law, God's Word, and making it digestible for the people. You know? and, and I could tell you, the majority of the people that surrounded Him had a very base, if not no, education. So here the Son of God is making this understandable for everyone regardless of their education level. Of course he's the son of God. He was a master. He was able to do this, to make everything understood. So Matthew 5.33, Jesus, now again, this is thousands of years of hearing the oaths, of hearing the promises, and Jesus now says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform your oaths to the Lord. And we can look at Ecclesiastes. But I say to you, do not swear at all neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Be a person of your word. I can tell you something, when people ask me to do something, and, and it might come off rude, but I'm not quick to say, yeah, I'll do it. All right, let me just let me think about that. Let me pray about that. Let me look at my schedule. Because I don't want to be the one that even says to you guys, oh yeah, I'm going to do it. And then I don't show up or I, oh, I can't do it now. I don't want to be that person. In Matthew 23, Jesus criticizes, chastises the religious leaders for making hypocritical oaths. They actually made certain oaths that it was like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Well, if I swear by the, I don't know, the temple... I might have to fulfill my oath, but if I swear by the gold in the temple, this was their scam. This was their religious scam that they did. You know, well, that, that one I really have to keep. And they would have this system, and Jesus saw right through it. You know, God wants us to be people of our word. And, and when it comes to Him, 
God wants us to follow him and obey him, not out of terror, but out of love. What does 1 John 4 says? We love him, we love God, because he first loved us. He sent his son to die for our sins. He so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him, any whosoever here that hasn't made that choice, would not perish, but have eternal life. Everyone's a whosoever. That's why that word whosoever is there. Anyone, anywhere, regardless of your past, you come to the Lord. You come to the Lord. The fifth point, verse 29, going back to Nehemiah 10, the fifth point, he says, observe and do the commandments and statutes in God's word. Again, the sermons, the rallies, the fellowship, the excitement, the euphoria, the hair standing on the back of your neck. You go home and you have two choices. I'm going to follow through, I'm going to do it, or I'm not going to do it. Jesus told a simple story about two sons that the father had. And and it's reflective about how we deal with the Lord. And the father says to the one son, hey, you need all this stuff done. Sure, Father. Oh, Father, I'll do it. And he leaves the Father's presence, does none of it. You know, but he sounded good, didn't he? Sounded really great. The second son, he says, I need all this you know, stuff done. Do this. Son goes, no, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I haven't really thought it through. I don't feel like doing it. I'm embellishing a little bit. However, the second son has a change of heart, and he does, the, he does it. Jesus said, so which one did the Father's will? Now, that's a great parallel to us. You know, you, you ever meet these people that, even in the church, they just immediately start with the mouth. You know, they want to please people with their words, and then they don't follow through. But the better one is the one who's pensive, who's thoughtful, who maybe even in their flesh decides they don't want to do it, and then they're convicted by the Spirit and they do it. That's the one that does the will of God. You know, it, it, it's not about putting on a show in front of other believers. Me personally, shows are hard work. Uh, they're hard to maintain. I just prefer to be myself. Sometimes I come off a little crusty. It's okay. But the thing is, I got to be me. You know what I'm saying? I, I can't be somebody else. I can't pretend to be somebody else. I can't pretend to be this ministry that people like. I can't do it. You know, and, and brothers and sisters, you got to do the same. You just got to be you. But you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit, desire it, and desire to please the Lord. And you know what? Sometimes we're going to come in the church and we're going to be in bad mood. You know, if somebody just cut us off or bumped us, you know, rear-ended us in our brand new car or whatever the case may be, come in, we're irritated, we see something we don't like, it's okay. Be yourself. Just if you're really that angry, don't sit too close to anybody. <laughs> so, so we move on to the sixth point, verse 30. Again, this is another... You know, it's amazing. Again, the Scripture twisters can take any of this stuff and twist it. See, the Bible is this. See, the Bible is that. And it's my job to explain it. You go back into the culture, you read a little history books, you say, oh, that was what was going on at the time. That makes sense. Sixth point. They agreed not to give their daughters in marriage to foreigners or give their... take pagan daughters from other peoples and marry them to their sons. Listen, American culture is very different. It's amazing. When you go across the seas, it's a whole different world out there. The rules are different. The cultures is different. You know, some, some are shocked when they go to another country. I can't believe that this is how they do things there. In American culture, 
You can come and go as you want. You could marry who you want. You could, you know, marry somebody that is of a completely different belief system, and you can worship, do whatever you want, and they could do whatever they want. But back then, especially with the women, because of that culture, when the daughters were married off, they were taken to a pagan land, surrounded by idolatry, occult practices, and they were pretty much forced to worship the pagan gods. So this was very important, especially for the young ladies. Brings me to another point, 2 Corinthians 6. The Bible talks about when we get married, that we need to be equally yoked spiritually. The Bible doesn't say anything about which ethnicity to choose, who's got money, what bloodline they come from. In the New Testament, it says there's only one rule. can't be unequally yoked. Now, I see that in, in our culture, there's a pressure for young women to get married. And sometimes they'll settle. They'll take a, a husband who's not a believer. And I'm going to tell you something. Let me just fast forward your life, young ladies, in your 20s, late 40s and 50s. The women come into my office with tears in their eyes, and they're brokenhearted because the husband said, oh, yeah, you can go to church. Oh, yeah, this, that, that. And then once they're married for a while, the husband's like, well, I'm married now. And they're trying to have a fire for the Lord, and they love their husband, but there's this dampening effect. This is reality. This is why I'm up here. <laughs> you know, sometimes we have to cover these subjects. Marriage is difficult to begin with. Again, bringing two, two sinners together. But if one person is completely passionate for the Lord and the other one is not, it's going to cause problems. The Bible knows what it's talking about. I have a, a friend, really solid believer. It's amazing because he was telling me about a relationship he had in college. Again, it works in the reverse too. He was dating this young lady and they were really getting along and they seemed to love each other. And one day she said, I, I won't say his name, <laughs> have to be careful. Um, she said, we can't be dating anymore. And he said, why not? Everything's going great. She goes, we're unequally yoked. And he was mad. And it's funny because fast forward 10, 15 years later, 10 years later, he becomes a Christian and he tells me the story. He goes, he becomes a Christian now, by the way. And then he tells me the story and he says to me, he goes, I didn't understand. And I was mad at her. Everything was going fine. He goes, now I get it. Now I get what it means to be unequally yoked. So hopefully she found a Christian man that she married, and he found a Christian wife, and they got married and have a beautiful family. Again, it's not being mean. It's not being biased. It's being, it's going to dampen. God doesn't want the fire in us to be dampened by any, any means. And Jesus said, God's got to come first. Okay? I got, I got news to you, for you. My wife is sitting in the back. I have one child. I have one son. And even now I'm praying for his wife. Uh, I don't really care what her ethnicity is, his wife. She, he has, he's 16, so he hasn't met her yet. Well, maybe he has. I just don't know it. I don't care what her ethnicity is. I don't care what her education level, what parents she comes from, if she's got money or not. All I care about is that my son chooses a woman who loves the Lord. Right, Heather? That's right. She knows it. It's, it's the same. We, we believe we're just, that's the, that's the thing. Um, seventh point, moving on, verse 31. It says they decided not to do business on the Sabbath. You know, back then and today, sometimes really obeying God's word can put us at a financial disadvantage. I know some that maybe were a little fast and loose with their financial practices. They become Christians and, and they're convicted about being really honest and doing the job that they say they're going to do. And 
Um, that's a great thing, but you, you may lose some money. Now, in this situation, the Jews were not supposed to do business on the Sabbath, but the pagans did it all, all week long. They did whatever they wanted because they weren't under God. See, pleasing God and sacrifice something or obtaining a benefit but compromising, you know? As a matter of fact, when we look at the seventh year's produce at the last part of verse 31, that one last year, they were supposed to leave everything fallow, let the land heal. Turn over the soil, let the minerals be reabsorbed or whatever's growing. Um, And it's actually an agrarian practice that people use today. You can't just keep depleting the soil. And then you hear about all the foods and they're depleted of its, you know. So it's a very smart practice. It goes all the way back to God saying to his, his people that this is what has to be done. They didn't do it. And guess what? That got him in a lot of trouble. It got him sent to Babylon for 70 years. All right? One year for each year uh, that they didn't let the land lie fallow. The Sabbath was for the Israelites. Now, this is a, a deeper discussion. It's a discussion about dispensation. It's a discussion about Old Testament and what's changed in the fulfillment of the New Testament. But suffice it to say, without getting into all that, that the Sabbath was for the children of Israel. They were supposed to rest. They were supposed to worship God. There was very limited things that they could do on the Sabbath day. Now, today, if you're a... And it's amazing how you can see all these different sects of Christianity and how they pull in one direction or another. Seventh-day Adventists, they'll push you. They'll almost uh, become very legalistic about the Sabbath day and Saturday. And listen, things have changed. Um, And if you you work on Saturday, you're violating and it goes against their practices. So it's a little bit legalistic there. Um, There's a lot of the the Old Testament law that were tied to the temple. There is no temple anymore. By the way, Jesus has replaced that anyway. The Holy of Holies was in the temple. You know, we have Jesus Christ and we have the Holy Spirit. So you can see this. Jesus talked about fulfilling the law, not destroying it. There was a, you know, an acquiescence to what we believe today. What does the scripture tell us? The perfection of Jesus Christ. The perfection of being sealed with the Holy Spirit versus an external type of uh, situation. However, I do have news for you that in the Ten Commandments, some things still apply. We still can't steal. We still can't, you know, murder. And we still can't lie about people, commit adultery and all that kind of stuff. But suffice it to say that, that they were doing what their pagan neighbors were doing. And a lot of times, well... God wanted the Jews to set a light to their pagan neighbor so they could see Yahweh in them. They could see that light in them. But a lot of, what a lot of the Jewish people were doing was they were acting and behaving like everybody else around them. And there was not a lot of conversions because the pagans were like, well, they're not much different from us. So this revival was for them to say, we want to change this. We want to change this. We want to make a commitment. Even to today, to some, commit is a dirty word. It's a, because you know what? It's a tough word. Commit leads to another difficult word that starts with C, and that word is change. Right? I'm going to commit to the, what the Lord's word, uh, God's Word says. So I, I study God's Word. I understand it better, and I realize that it's a mirror, and my life's not looking so good. It's a little smudgy and messy, and well, some things I've got to change. So those two words that some, sometimes people have a difficulty with. The last few verses, verse 32, it says, Also we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, 
for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God. Remember, today you look to Jerusalem, you see part of the wailing wall, and that's it. Everything's gone. So unless you really know the scripture, you're really versed in this, you're like, what are they talking about? <laughs> this was their way of worshiping when on the Temple Mount today, that, used to, um, that temple used to exist. As a matter of fact, it was the Valley of Hinnom, the different valleys that surround even today, there's really large stones from when the Romans destroyed everything and pushed the stones over the edge into these ravines, into these valleys. So it says, according to our fathers' houses at the appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord, our God, as it is written in the law, to burn on the altar of our, the Lord, our God. And we made ordinance to bring the first fruits of our ground and first fruits of the fruit of all trees, year by year, to the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstlings of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God. Heavy commitment to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offering, the fruit of all kinds of trees, the new wine and the new oil, the priests, to the priests, the storehouses, the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priests, the descendants of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouses." For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain of the new wine and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are and where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are and we will not neglect the house of our God. We'll not neglect it. We'll not neglect it. Now let me just say this, that the eighth point is in the last point here, the eighth condition and stipulation. And there were times that the children of Israel didn't care. They just were so busy with their own houses and their own lives. It was almost like the prosperity gospel got to the, got to the Israelites. They just didn't care about the things of God unless God was somehow blessing them. And we read in the prophets about the temple was in disrepair. You know, it was, they used the, the, the little um, caverns, the cavities as storage areas, and they just stuffed things in there. And there was idolatrous stuff in the, you know, in the temple and, it was really bad, and, and God had to keep telling his people, listen, you, you have to respect this. This is where my Shekinah glory is. Come on. So the eighth point, taking care of the ministry of God. As you can see, there's a lot to it, as there is today. I'll go through it briefly. Verse 32 through 33. They agreed to take the temple tax, so there'd be money for ministry supplies, food, offerings, feasts, miscellaneous duties. 34. They agreed to rotate regular... Uh, bring, regularly bringing wood to keep the fire of the altar burning continuously. 35, they promised to bring the firstlings or the first fruits of their harvest. 36, they promised to bring the best of their livestock. And God gave uh, redemption, or they had to give redemption for the firstborn sons. 37 and 38, they promised to tithe. People say, what does a tithe mean? Tithe really just means a tenth. It means 10%. So they took 10% of what their income was, which could have been in the form of what they produced. Remember, that was an agrarian society. It was a bartering society, right? Did they have, you know, coin money? Sure they did. But a lot of what they did was to bring from their harvest, right, to, to the ministry of God. 39 was sort of a catch-all to make sure 
everybody understood that the temple of God was not going to be neglected. Again, this was binding. They signed it, they sealed it, and they did all these things to say, we're bound to this. We said we would do it, so we have to follow through with it. Now, let me just say this. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, for those of you that have been here for years, you'll know we hardly ever talk about money. However, we're going to be faithful to talk about money when it comes up in the Scripture. Otherwise, it promotes irresponsibility, misappropriation, skewed priorities, and really lack of spiritual blessing. You know, there's these, these ideas out there, how you can, it's almost like a Ponzi scheme, how in Christianity you can get yourself wealthy. No, God blesses based on our faithfulness, not some way to manipulate him and, and say things over and over again and mulling around and bouncing around in our heads. That's mantra. Jesus spoke about mantra when, it's, when it came to prayer. However, this whole prosperity gospel thing is really rooted in Eastern mysticism. It's this repetition and doing it over and over and believing it and and visualizing it and this is going to be my house on the cul-de-sac. It's not in Scripture. It's not in Scripture. We're not at any time soon going to ask you to take out your wallets or your pocketbooks and hand it to the person next to you and dump it in the offering plate. We don't do that either. That's weird. You know, that's... Are people going to come in here with like $2 in their pocket? You know, we're not doing that. Don't worry about it. But, But... No ministry runs on charisma. It didn't in the Old Testament. It didn't in the temple. It didn't in the, in the Acts church. And it doesn't work here, okay? The Bible speaks plenty about financial responsibilities to the Lord. Now, sadly enough, greedy and hypocritical preachers, many with funny accents and bad hairdos, have turned people off to the church because of the overfocus on money. We're not going to do that. <laughs> but it doesn't absolve us of our fiscal responsibilities. So, let me just say this. Do a simple exercise. And I don't do stuff in church because these, these things should be done in private. Right? It's not a pressure thing. Go home, take out your checkbook, open it up. Go online, get your credit card statement in the last few months. Start flipping through it. See where you spend your money. See where most of your money is spent. That could probably tell you what you worship and who you worship could be all me. Oh, wow, the credit card. It's all about me. Look at all the stuff I spend on myself. Is there any generosity? Is there any commitment to the work of the Lord? Or is it all about what I want? It's a simple exercise, but it's very effective. And again, it can point out where the idols are in our lives. You know, it's amazing. The widow that Jesus spoke about who dropped her two mites in the temple treasury, nobody was looking at her. The disciples weren't looking at her. The religious leaders weren't looking at her. But Jesus was looking at her. He goes, she gave more than everybody. What? Because it was a show. People would come in and they would, they would make a production about the money that they gave. Even the, the, the religious leaders, they would take their little anise plants and their mint and stuff and they would pluck off the little leaves and go, look, I'm, giving, I'm even giving 10% of my plants. It was a production. And Jesus said, look at that widow. She put in two mites. I can tell you right now, she doesn't have the money. She gave more than everybody here and nobody noticed it. Money's a funny thing, isn't it? What does the Bible tell us about finances? Well, two things that would kill any ministry. I don't care how big it is. It could be a multi-million dollar ministry. Two things that would kill any ministry. You ready? Number one, lack of help. No servants. All the servants, one, one day on Sunday come in and we're on strike. The place crumbles. 
Everybody decides we're not giving anymore. Place crumbles. Two things, servants and financial help. I'll leave you with this. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. You know what's amazing? God's word is practical. You know, again, sometimes people are indoctrinated with religion and it's, they're just anxious. They don't even want to come to church. They don't want to hear the message. They have anxiety about it. But when you really go into God's word, it's very practical. It says this, but I say this, he who sows, puts out sparingly, will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. You know, the, I, I really disagree very strongly with churches that want to know what you're making, what you're given, and they send you stuff pretty much to harass you. You're not giving enough. It's not just in Christianity. I know people from other faiths that if I told you some stories, you'd be aghast. And there's this social pressure to still be a part of it, and the money they're giving is it's unconscionable. But what does the Bible say? Here's a principle. You, you're generous, God will be generous with you. You're stingy, well, don't expect a whole lot. But in addition to that, don't give grudgingly or of compulsion, necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, honestly, if you're that upset and you, you feel, I'm, it isn't, we're, we're, nobody's, nobody's trying to twist your arm here. As a matter of fact, you know, some, sometimes somebody come up to me and go, oh, I bounced the check. I'm like, oh, I didn't know it. Because we have two separate groups that count the money, and I don't see the checks. So it keeps me honest. I like that. I can look at everybody equally. Not to say that I wouldn't, but, you know, man's heart is wicked, and I'm a man. <laughs> so very simple equation. All right, well, you bounce the check. I'm going to talk to Christine, figure it out. Do whatever you need to do. It's not, not me, whatever. People ask me, hey, do you know? No, I don't know because I don't pay attention to it. I need the, the, the aggregate figure, so when I go to a board meeting, we can figure out what we're going to budget for, but like I said, it keeps me honest. God loves a cheerful giver. You know, if we're mad about it or we're angrily writing that check, we take the ballpoint pen and press it in so hard that it goes down four copies, keep the money. God doesn't need it. Keep it. Enjoy yourself. Buy yourself an ice cream. Seriously. I find that when we follow the scripture, we're more successful. It's that simple. So, going back to this, the Israelites had eight stipulations to their commitment to the Lord. Again, commitment. Where are we when it comes to follow through as Christians? You know, that's important. This isn't just about the Israelites, folks. I mean, honestly, if somebody said to me, hey, my grandfather passed away, um, can you do the funeral? Oh, yeah, sure. And that day comes, 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, where's Pastor Joe? Call me up, hey, where are you at? Oh, I'm on the golf course. You know, I'm just hitting a few links here and, well, what about the funeral? Oh, I had a better opportunity that came up. Oh, you don't want that from me, but you know what? We're not supposed to do that either. Well, that won't happen because I don't play golf. <laughs> I wouldn't know one hole from the other. But the point is that are we following through? Well, at my level, I don't have to. No, it's not true. Do people know us by our word? Commitment. Commitment. Or is it just an emotional thing where we say something, we don't follow up? Listen. Everybody here has spiritual gifts. 
And I love when God reveals them in you and God shows me what you have. And I'm like, wow, you're really good at that. I don't have that. We could use you over here. That's really wonderful. Brothers and sisters, all you have to do is read the news and realize we're in a spiritual battle. And quite frankly, in any church, there's, there's really no place for spectators. How do you watch a war and know that one side is the righteous side? You're just kind of looking. Listen, people are dying on the battlefield. People are dying every day in our streets. You know, people are dying every day in our communities. If it's not bullets, it's heroin. If it's not heroin, it's suicide. The youth uh, uh, suicide rate is alarming. What are we doing? Are we spectators? Children of Israel said, not only do we want to do this, but we want to make sure when we wake up tomorrow morning, our names are still on there, and it's binding. Brothers and sisters, we have to be the same way. You know, the bullets are whizzing, the spiritual bullets. The battle is almost over. The war is almost over, but it's not yet. One day our Lord, our mighty general, will come riding on a white horse, and he will signal when it's time for us to rest. And just so nobody gets the wrong impression, I'm not talking about jihad. I'm talking about spiritual battles where we get on our knees and we go before the throne and we warfare for that, that loner who might take their life. And we, we warfare for that person who's in a gang-banging lifestyle and we're concerned that they may lose their life. You know, we, 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 we warfare for our soldiers and our first responders. That's our responsibility. You know, we, we need to commit to that. This place is a mess. I don't mean this church. I mean this culture. And quite frankly, from what I read in Scripture, it's not going to get better. Humanism, the UN, it's not going to solve the problem because the, the solving, the solution, is what they want to keep out, and that's Jesus Christ. So how are you going to fix and make peace when you push out the Prince of Peace? I want to encourage you in these last two Scriptures and we'll close. Psalm 37, 23 through 24, it says, The steps of a good person are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall, be, uh, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Don't give up. You don't think I fail? You don't think the leaders here fail? You don't think we make mistakes? But you know what? There's one thing that we do. We keep getting back up. We keep getting back up. Two, Philippians 4, 13. We'll be covering this. I can do all things... Through Christ who strengthens me. All means all. It doesn't mean some. It doesn't mean a few things. It means all things. But are we truly doing it through Christ? Are we doing it in our own strength? You know, I find that many Christians are unfulfilled because they're not fully committed to the Lord and they don't like to hear that. It annoys them. Yeah, but you asked me to counsel you. But don't say that. Oh, come on. Give me a break. You know, here are the answers in Scripture. If, our, if we're walking in two worlds and our heart's really not for one place or the other, there's going to be a sense of unfulfillment. So I want to encourage you today, brothers and sisters, that today be the day that you make that commitment. Today be the day that you put Christ first place in your life above everything. Let's pray. You've been listening to to every generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. 
Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.